Thank you for joining us for Sermons on Demand from Friendship Grace Brethren Church. We provide these videos as a way to share the pulpit messages and teachings offered at Friendship Grace Brethren Church. If you find these videos a helpful resource, please drop us a note at info at friendshipgracebrethren.com. Now open your Bibles and get ready to dig into the Word of God. Okay, um, any questions or comments before uh, we get going? I had one question. Okay. And when um, they were putting, when Moses was putting the temple and everything together after they made all the goods, did he do it by himself, or did he have help putting the tents and all the the ark and all that stuff in there? You mean the tabernacle? Tabernacle. Yeah, I'm sorry. Um, no, he didn't do it himself. Um, in our reading, you should have encountered Bezalel and uh, I forget the other guy's name, Holaba or something like that. <laughs> They're the ones that that created stuff. We're going to talk about uh, about them in a little while. Um, there were there were Levites. Other Levites, um, Moses and Aaron were Levites, but there were others of that Levitical family that uh, would ultimately be charged with uh, putting together the tabernacle. They had different jobs, and they only did that job. So if, if the tabernacle was not being moved for a while, like the year they stayed at Mount Sinai, um, they didn't have a lot to do except maintenance and you know that kind of stuff. Um, but they all had different different jobs some guys were in charge of of carrying the uh the ark some guys were in charge of carrying the uh the, sk the the skin cover that goes over the top of the the tabernacle others carried the poles that the tabernacles rested on they all had certain assignments okay rich yes in exodus 32 um when Moses was angry and the people repented, it set, he said he tells the Levites to get their swords on and go around and about and kill people, mm -hmm. and they killed about three thousand men. But I can't figure out. I couldn't figure out if God had told him to do that or not. It felt to me like Moses just said to do that in anger and not as something from God. Correct. As, as I recall, Moses did not talk to God about that. He just was angry. And uh, But I have to go back and look to make sure of that. Because if he did it just out of anger, it doesn't seem like God corrected him in any way for it. How far down 32 is that? 27. 27, okay, I was just getting there. Um, <laughs> he says, thus says the Lord God of Israel, put your sword on each side of you. But, I don't know, it just felt wrong. I must have misunderstood somehow. Well, let's, let's also consider what was what had Moses already been told by God at this point? The first round of the Ten Commandments and so forth. Yeah, and so what what did they do 
in violation of those Ten Commandments. What they did was were all capital crimes in, in their system. So Moses would have been justified as the final arbiter of that anyway in their system to to execute them because he saw that they were guilty. And, and so he was he was on the side of what God had said, but we don't have a recording in uh, in Exodus that God told him to go do that, but God had already told him in here's the law. Don't violate this or you know you die. And so you you can argue that God didn't have to tell him to do it because he'd already told him to do it. But doesn't doesn't verse 27 it says, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, each man fastened his sword, etc. But then God right. said play. Say so that again, Mary? Then, but then in verse 35, God sent a plague. So first he, he punishes them by killing some, and then he punishes them by a plague. That just doesn't, I don't know why, but it just didn't sit in my head the way, you know, well, the ones that were killing is the, they're basically getting rid of the ones that were causing all the trouble and all the problems. Right. You know, the, the ones that were stirring up all of the others. Right, but they, it just doesn't seem like God would send two punishments like that, is what I'm trying to get at. It just doesn't seem to fit. But it might be how tired I am and not <laughs> anything else. Now, according to uh, Holman Old Testament commentary, uh, Moses made the Israelites taste the bitterness of their sin by forcing them to drink the remaining dregs of the ashes that he from the the burning of the the uh, um, golden calf. This action was symbolic of the wages of sin, and then Moses turned to his brother and asked. Why did these people, uh, what did these people do to you that you led them into such sin? And so Moses is dealing with, with a compounding of sins. You know, Aaron had as much, almost as much interaction from God in, in the early time of the, the Exodus as did um, Moses. And so Aaron is, is culpable. Uh, he's the high priest. He's culpable mm-hmm. for not preventing them from from sinning, and and so we we have a we have a, a multiplicity of things going on, and uh, you know at one point God wants to kill them all, or or right. let or lets Moses know he's angry enough that he would want to kill them all. Um, so the fact that there's two different punishments, I don't think that that's is anything unusual. Because they don't all work the same. I have to ask the question, since we're right in that passage, why didn't God just drop Moses or drop Aaron on the ground like he did with his sons later on and some of the others? I mean, he, exactly. led them, he led them into idol worship. He led them in, you know, he lied about it. He said, oh, I threw the gold in and it out popped this idol. And, you know, why didn't God just drop him right there? Yeah, I don't think I can ever answer a why didn't or why did God. I don't think I can ever answer that. Um, all I can do is extrapolate a little from it what we know happened in the future or future to them in the past for us. Um, Aaron becomes a symbol of redemption because he he led the country, he led the people in in the most heinous uh, treasonous sins 
and yet God still used him to establish a religious system. And so, you know, is that why God did that? I don't know. I don't know that I'll ever know the answer to that question. And I don't know that we have a way to answer that question. But I can tell you this. His sin was not, not any more grievous than our sin. And so when you ask that question, are you also saying, God, why didn't you kill me the first time I sinned? I That's disagree with that because he led the whole nation into to sin into idol worship, and and that was God's number one big no no is leading them into um, idol worship. Yeah, but it's all treason, right? When we sin, it's still treason. Now, are there levels of sin? You betcha, there are. Are there varying punishments for sin? I think so. Are there varying rewards for obedience? I think so. So, you know, some get to sit right close to the head table at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Other people will be in another time zone. <laughs> I was thinking back 40. Hold on, hold on, hold on. There's time in heaven? <laughs> <laughs> Rich, would he well, also be, go ahead? Go ahead, Elaine. Would he also be under the um, is it Timothy or Titus, where you're held doubly accountable when you lead the people? Would he also be under that? No, because that was written uh, 2,500 years later. Well, 1,500 years later. Would the principal say Pr that it was principal? Would still be the same? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Moses Moses didn't get to go to the promised land. Aaron didn't no. get to go to the promised land. Aaron didn't even get to see it. Moses at least got to see it. And then Moses got to go 1,500 years later. Yeah. At the transfiguration. He didn't see much, didn't see much of it, though. No. In that transfiguration. No. Well, he had a bird's eye view of it. Yeah. True. And, and and I have stood where Moses stood, where he saw the promised land, and that's kind of cool. Standing on top of Mount Nebo, we, we had a rare, clear day. We could see all of the Dead Sea. We could see the hills of Jerusalem. And you it's probably my imagination because the uh, the Mediterranean was, you know, 120, 130 miles away, but you could see what looked like the glimmer of the of the ocean or of the sea uh in and you could see north almost to the uh to the galilee so and and it's not normally that clear it's it's often hazy in israel but standing on top of mount nebo was pretty cool i think it's almost it, it it's probably second or third of my favorite places compared to uh gethsemane and the uh and the uh um garden tomb. tomb yeah the garden tomb Gethsemane is a whole different story. It's it's different feeling. Right, Ann? Yep. Yeah, it's a completely different feeling. Okay, any other questions, comments? I like, it's just a comment. In chapter 33, um, I like the comment was in verse 16, for how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? It is it not in your going with us 
so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth. And when I was reading that, I thought, God still wants us to be distinct, because that's now why we have the Holy Spirit. Right. He wants us to be a distinct people. <coughs> Absolutely right. Oh, what's going on here? Yeah. Okay. Read Exodus uh, 31, 1 through 11. What's unique in this passage? Exodus 31, 1 through 11. What's unique in this passage? The Lord said to Moses, See, I've called uh, by my called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God in the ability uh, yes. with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, <coughs> to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Oholaba, the son of uh, um, uh, Hishamak, of the tribe of Dan, and I have given to all um, able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. The tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony and the mercy seat that is on it and all the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils and the pure lampstand with all its utensils and the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering and all the utensils and the basin and its stand and the finely worked gar uh, garments, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priest, and anointing oil and the fragment, uh, or, I'm sorry, fragrant incense for the holy place, according to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. What's unique about that passage? Uh, what is his name? Bet. Bezalel, Bezalel? Filled. yeah he was filled right and in the testament the holy spirit didn't normally fill correct and i have filled him with the spirit of god filled is the hebrew word malay this word has a, a couple of general senses one is to fill like you would fill a, a pot with water but it also has the sense of devoting someone to a mission or even to endow somebody. Like you would endow a chair at a university. You would give money to it to make it happen. So when you, when you put that together, what I understand from, this, from the use of this word is that God supernaturally provided Bezalel with the abilities greater than the normal. He had natural abilities that were then supercharged supernaturally. This, uh, this may be, um, or this was, so that he was able to not only do the art necessary to arrive at these final objects that were classified as being more beautiful than anything else, but he was able to do it in, in various ways and to engineer the things. If God said to you, um, Chuck, because you're so handy with stuff, I want you to build uh, out of acacia wood um, something, you know, X by X by X, and then overlay it with gold. How would you do that? I, I, I got nothing. I would, I would pick a lifeline and call you, maybe. Yeah. 
you know, I take a miracle. Or, or, or obviously, from our discussion earlier, I call Steve. Yeah, I would. You know, you you have to first figure out what's acacia wood, and where am I going to get it, and then uh, how do I build it, and how do I engineer it so it does what he wants it? Because God didn't engineer these things for him; He just told him what He wanted, and so engineering was part of this as well. Um, think of the think of the breastplate that the high priest would wear with all those great jewels on it. Well, how do you do that? You don't just, you know, it's not just, well, there it is, and you put it together. How do you put it together? There's engineering involved. The tent. Imagine this. Imagine the tabernacle. I talked to Randy when he was building the one in uh, that he had in the, in the Negev that was is, is following the instructions we, we read in the text. And he said it was almost impossible for us to build it the sizes they say out of the material they say. And so the engineering's involved. So Bezalel was being provided with supernatural ability to do probably what he already had some natural ability to do, but in all sorts of medium. You know, the, the guys yeah. cutting stones don't normally work with wood. The guys cutting stone and, and working with wood don't normally sew garments. But he did all of that and engineered it at the same time. So God used these abilities to engineer and build the tabernacle. God provided a model to Moses. Now, think about, think about how hard this is. God shows Moses a model in, uh, in heaven. I don't know if he poofed them there. I don't know how that happened. But Moses gets to see what it looks like in the heavenly model. And then God says, do that. And then Moses, he comes down off the mountain and he says, and he says to Bezalel, this is what I saw, do that. Bezalel didn't see the model. Bezalel had to take what Moses saw and maybe reported with some specificity. And, you know, what, did Moses go around the heavenly model and, and measure his arm, you know, measure, okay, it's, it's 14 cubits, it's 9 cubits, and so forth. Did, somehow Bezalel has to make that fit and work from what God, or what God gave Moses and Moses gave him. You know what else is amazing? They were in the middle of the desert. Where did they get all the wood? Well, they looted the Egyptians. Could they not have had had some wood? Well, yeah, I, but what wood? And the gold and silver, but what, you don't normally carry wood with you. What I wood mean, do you take? What wood do you take from Egypt? They could have taken some carts of wood, but what wood do you take? Because God hadn't told them yet they're going to do it out of acacia wood. Yeah. So do you do you take a little oak? You take a little palm? You take a little acacia? How does that you know? How, how does that work? So there, there's all sorts of things that had to happen to make this go. God, what's that? God provided for them. Yeah. What they needed. He made acacia trees grow where they normally don't grow, so they could take the wood. Yeah. It's possible, I guess. The trees in the well, desert. Additionally, they um, he also made able men that were able to help him make right. all of these things. In verse six. He didn't do it all by himself, so he had other talent working with him. Right. But notice he's the one that gets the headline. He, he's the architect and the, uh, and the um, general contractor, and he's the guy that is responsible for it all. 
Right, but he's also got people that he can right. command to say, okay, go do this, and I right. want you to, and God gave him the abilities to do those things. Since God given to all men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. Right, exactly. And he was preparing them with knowledge, obviously, mm -hmm. and... Supernatural knowledge. Yeah, yeah. So... Let's now let's think about what's going on here. According to the model that Moses saw and then he conveys to Bezalel and that they finally erect, it was a spectacular place of worship. Think about it. You have the you have this box that's really ornate covered in gold you have you have gold on the on all the utensils and it's just really ornate spectacular why it all leads me to conclude that the worship of god needs to be special and not routine you know they moses had another tent of meeting when you're when you're reading when you're reading the the exodus you will see moses being sometimes going to the tent of the meeting that he keeps outside of the camp. That's not the tabernacle. Tabernacle was in the middle of the camp. There's another place he met with God outside the camp. It's not ornate. It's not spectacular. But the place where the corporate worship was is spectacular. Now, let's bring it into... Go ahead. What I don't understand is why it was so small and the opening was so narrow because if we've got a million people that was what a, I don't know 15 cubit or 15 feet I don't know which one I, I can't remember that opening into the place where the altar and the basin were a million people can't see that so when the animals were being sacrificed not everybody could even see it right and not everybody could be there because you can't do that in that amount of space anyway so it had to be done right. over over time, over over long periods of time, especially early on, because there weren't a lot of priests yet. There were Aaron and his four sons, and two of his sons quickly committed uh, DRT, and uh, you know they they had uh, had a strange fire, and God to toasted them. Right. So we so we, we don't have. I don't we, understand that principle. I'm sure God did it for some reason, but it it totally escapes me. So you don't have a lot of people working on stuff, and it has to take a long period of time for it to happen. So God builds a builds a what? What? I'm just I'm ruminating. Why does worship need to take a long period of time? Well, it it, it has to happen over a long period of time because you can't all fit in the same space. The way yeah, Israel. Why did God do it that way? Well, there's the why God again that I still can't answer. Yeah, I, I, can't, I can't answer that. I can only tell you what I can see in the text here. And what this, what this text leads me to believe is that God specifically created a place, a spectacular place for worship because his worship is supposed to be special. It's not, it's not mundane. It's not ordinary. It's special. Now, let's put that into our context today. I don't think that means we have to have an ornate physical worship space. I don't, I don't think that's what we're being told. Our 
our economy and sensibility and society is different. It meant something then because of who was around them and where they came from. So they had to be in that vein to, to an extent. But I think in our, in our context today, I think it means that we have to have a place uh, of worship of God in our heart that is above everything else. The tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant was above everything else, right? You couldn't even touch it without dying, which I still don't understand. You need to, you need, you may need to exclude everything from your, your environment at points of time to worship. It was 46 degrees on the back porch this morning when I went out for my reading. I have to do that because everything else will, it's the only place I can go that I'm not totally distracted. If I do it in the office, I got thousand things here to distract me. If I do it at the table, I got Linda and Harper to distract me. And and so even when it's freezing buns out and I got to have a quilt and a, and a fire table going, I do that because I don't have as much out there to ex, to distract me. It has to be the supreme thing. Um, Which brings to mind, remember the movie we watched a long time ago called The War Room? Yeah. And the lady went into the closet right. by herself and... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that right. just came to mind thinking about that. Yeah. So I, I think, I think God given Bezalel and and his uh, his employees this supernatural power to build is emblematic of of how important it is for us to worship. In our context, it's different than theirs. In our context, the worship still has to be primary. They they. They spent more time and money building the tabernacle and then ultimately building the temple than they did on anything else in their system. They spend more money and more time in preparing sacrifices. And as Mary pointed out, you can't they couldn't all get there. So you had to be in line for a long time to get there so that you could lay your hand on the on the head of the lamb, the throat be slit, and, and so forth. It took time. It was supreme dedication that needed to happen. Okay, that's what's unique about that passage. Uh, where we are? Uh-oh. I think I might have messed up. You can't read that, can you? No. No. <laughs> Is that the right one? Yeah, read Exodus 35, 1 through 3. Why does God place such an emphasis on keeping the Sabbath? So Exodus 35, 1 through 3. And I'm sorry, I got them in the wrong color, so they won't show up. Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, These are the things the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days shall be done work shall be done but on the seventh day you shall have sabbath of solemn rest holy to the lord whoever does any work on it shall be put to death it's a capital crime to violate the sabbath you shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the sabbath day what made the sabbath what what's the principle here about the sabbath the day that, the day that god rested after creating the world 
Okay. God wanted it to be a day that you would focus only on him. Do you have a, a biblical reference for that? The, the, no, the answer is no, because that's not true. That's what, uh, is it Kokel? I think it's Greg Kokel uses pastorisms. That's one of those things that preaches that isn't true. God didn't say it's, it's uh, a day of rest so you can uh, focus on me. It's a day of rest. But it preaches much better to say that it's a day of rest and you can focus on me. God didn't say that. I only learned that last year when, when we're going through this section. It seems Good to know. Yeah, it seems to me that that would make sense. And as Kokel says, that's a pastorism because it preaches well. There, there, there are two primary reasons for the Sabbath. The first, the Sabbath is a memorial to God, as uh, Katrina said, Exodus uh, 29 through 11. Six days uh, uh, you shall labor and do your work, but on the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do no work, you or your son, your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or sojourner uh, who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord has blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Okay, so God, God starts out creation. The, the God who created ex nihilo starts out creation by doing it over a period of three day, uh, six days. He could have, in one instant, done it all. There, there's no biological, there's no, there, there's no chemical, there's no reason that we have to have the six days. <clears throat> we had the six days because God set a precedence, set an example for us in what a, a week, a work week should be like. The, the creation week was designed by God to establish that precedent. A, a second or more practical purpose is to teach Israel and us about a work-life balance. Israel needed to understand that they needed rest. Now, none of us have lived in a in a, a agrarian subsistence world where you only ate that day what you caught or killed or pulled out of the ground. None of us have ever lived that way. So it doesn't make sense to us. But that's the way they lived. And, and that, that's the example God gives them when he gives them quail and manna, right? You only, you only get to eat what you for, for today. Don't store it for tomorrow because it will have worms. So, so God is reinforcing to them that there needs to be a work-life balance. At some point in the work week, you need to take some time. And you need to rest. Not so you can focus on me. I'm sure God appreciates that. But what he commanded us to do was to take it easy. Both of these purposes highlight God's example of a pattern of life. The heart of the Sabbath is rest. Ultimately, and what is rest also a picture of? Going out on a limb and saying it's being at peace with God because he calls it a Sabbath rest. Yeah, and that ultimately leads to? 
eternity? Yeah, salvation. Our Sabbath rest, when we memorialize how God rested on the seventh day, we are actually memorializing our salvation. Because rest is often referred to as our, our eternal rest, or a Sabbath rest, or however it's, it, Sabbath is used. There, there are more than 88 verses in uh, the Old Testament alone that talk about the Sabbath. It's a principle God established for a reason, and I think he, he had designed us such that we need to have downtime. And because it ultimately points to what he provides for us for eternity. Okay, let's go on to this one then. What do we learn about God through the design, building, and use of the tabernacle? What does it teach us when we look at all these pages about the tabernacle? What, what's the lesson that we're learning? Confusion. Did you say confusion? Yeah. <laughs> all God, the pages, God is in the details. <laughs> Well, let me read to you an answer. You know, I like to play with things sometimes. And so uh, Microsoft Copilot, which is Microsoft's uh, AI, it's, it's pretty cool. The tabernacle was a portable place of worship that God instructed the Israelites to build after he rescued them from Egypt. It was a symbol of God's presence and holiness among his people, and a foreshadow of Jesus Christ, the ultimate sacrifice and mediator between God and humanity. Through the design, building, and use of the tabernacle, we can learn many things about God, such as God is a God of order and detail. He gave Moses very specific instructions on how to construct the tabernacle and its furnishings, and how to perform the rituals and the ceremonies inside it. He also appointed skilled craftsmen and priests to carry out its every command, Everything in the tabernacle had a purpose and a meaning, and nothing was left to human improvisation or preference. God is a holy God who cannot tolerate sin. The tabernacle was divided into three sessions, sections, the outer court, the holy place, and the most holy place. Only the priest could enter the holy place, and only the high priest could enter the most holy place, once a year on the Day of Atonement. The most holy place contained the Ark of the Covenant, which represented God's throne in presence. A, quick, a thick curtain separated the most holy place from the holy place, signifying the barrier that sin created between God and his people. Anyone who approached God without proper cleansing and atonement would die instantly. God is a gracious and merciful God who provides a way of salvation. The tabernacle was also a place of sacrifice and forgiveness. In the outer court, the people would bring their offerings of animals, grains, and fruits to the bronze altar, where the priest would burn them as a symbol of their devotion and repentance. Just the fact that they got that right is amazing to me. The blood of the animals would cover their sins and make them acceptable to God. The bronze laver where the priests washed their hands and feet symbolized the cleansing and purification that God offers. 
The altar of incense, the lampstand, the table of the showbread in the holy place represented the prayers, light, and nourishment that God gives to his people. The high priest who entered the most holy place with the blood of the bull and a goat symbolized Jesus Christ who entered the heavenly sanctuary with his own blood to make atonement for the sins of the world. That should read propitiation, not atonement. <coughs> Hebrews 9, 11 through 12 says, But when Christ came, uh, came as the high priest uh, of the good things that are now already here, uh, he went uh, through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say is not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats, uh, goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. God is a faithful and loving God who desires to dwell with his people. The tabernacle was not only a place of worship, but also a place of fellowship. God promised to meet with Moses and the people at the tabernacle and to speak to them from every mercy or from above the mercy seat uh, of the Ark of the Covenant. Exodus 25:22 says, "There above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the Ark of the Covenant law, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites." God also manifested his glory and presence in the form of a cloud by day and fire by night, which guided and protected the Israelites during their journey in the wilderness. Exodus 40, 34-38 says, Then the cloud covered the tent of the meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and the fire was uh, in the cloud by night in the sight of the Israelites during all their travels. That's pretty good for, for a Microsoft product AI. Now, what they do is they go out and find uh, websites that talk about those things, and then they put it together. And I thought they did a pretty good job. I every once in a while go through and, and just ask it a question like I would ask you and see what it does and almost every time it's given pretty good answers it's even easier than trying a Google search you just pull up copilot and you say I, I asked the question the exact same question that I have on the screen what do we learn about God through the design building and use of the tabernacle and that's the answer I got that's pretty cool you know when I was reading all of this I came across a bunch of answers and they all on all the answers I came across said that the tabernacle pointed back back to Eden when fellowship with God was pure and I, I thought huh yeah the the, uh, the Bible project um, the guys that do the videos that we have in our stuff they they are big on that I know that's why I started researching because yeah. I've never heard that before. yeah um, John Walton not of John Boy fame is a Hebrew uh, professor at uh, uh, Wheaton. Wheaton, thank you. I, I was thinking Wycliffe. It had a W at Wycliffe. That wasn't right. Yeah, Wheaton. Um, he's one of the premier Hebrew scholars of the day. He has postulated for a long time that the days of creation are more a discussion of the heavenly tabernacle than they are the days of creation it when, when i first read that i, I he's kind of gone cuckoo for cocoa puffs 
you have to read like 150 pages in his stuff before you get to how how he means that. I don't agree with him, but I see the picture that he's trying to paint for that. I think the picture that of the tabernacle is exactly as we have it presented here, and what I've been talking about is what we get to in the end. That that perfection, completion where sin and death and, and all that pain are no longer possible in the new heaven and the new earth. When we get to the tabernacle that is no longer about propitiation, but it's about worship and fellowship, as it always was intended, but we wouldn't know that until we went through all of what we've gone through, all of that what the, the earth has gone through. And, and that, is a, that is, in a way, a picture of Eden. It is, it is the new heaven and new earth. It is the new Eden. Um, it was the way it was for maybe a day. I, I don't know how long Adam was, was wandering around in the garden with Eve, but it wasn't long. Maybe a day. I don't know. Um, that was perfection, but it was unknowing perfection. Adam and Eve didn't know what they didn't know. And they, they only knew good. They didn't know bad. And so good didn't mean anything. If you never saw dark, you wouldn't know what light is. Because you have no frame of reference. Everything we experience has a frame of reference. And so it's important for, uh, for the world to go through this frame of reference called sin. Because how much more glorious will our eternity be because we know that's no longer possible, but we went through it. Well, I'd only ever heard it pointed to Jesus. I had never heard Eden until this time. Yeah, there's there there that makes sense in a in a more I think more convoluted way. But if you uh, if you play with some of these uh, uh, AI components, they're kind of cool sometimes. And I understand why uh, why. Um, high schools and colleges have a proliferation of uh, of forgery. Not uh, what's that's not the word, plagiarism. Because it's real easy to do with this. That's why my notes say full disclosure written by Microsoft uh, Copilot AI. Okay, last question. What is the central message or theme of the book of Leviticus and how does that input impact our understanding of the contents of the book Leviticus I think is one of the hardest books in the Old Testament I, I mentioned to Joe and uh, Eric this morning that uh, a bunch of years ago I actually preached through Leviticus and Joe said what are you stupid <laughs> and I said, well, probably, but I still did. And there was a reason, because we needed to know what was there. I think it, the Leviticus' theme is, is uh, the law. Yeah, that, yeah, the law is certainly uh, front and center in Leviticus, but oh. I don't think that's the central message. Go ahead, Ann. 
Well, you you have said that the law teaches us how to relate to God and how to relate to each other. Yeah. So with Leviticus being an expansion and an exposition of the law, it just further instructs us on how we're to live. Yeah, it's, that's exactly right. And still today, it, it teaches us how to live. There, there are principles in the sacrifices. While we don't do the sacrifices, there are principles in those sacrifices and in the in, in in what they do that still have bearing on us. You know, we're we're not sacrificing goats, but the goats that they sacrificed, what were they? They were the best. God wants our best. First. Yeah, yeah there there are all sorts of lessons we can learn about how we relate to God and how we relate to each other. You know, the the book of Leviticus is is very very uh, tedious as it describes all sorts of things. As, suck it in, Chuck. As it describes all sorts of things uh, of how we're to do things, of, of how, we, how we're to approach God. Um, think about the young 30-year-old brand-new priest. They didn't become priest or practice as priest until they were 30 that had to go out and make sure that, that the pus was gone. They had to make sure it can go out that the 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 mold in the in the in the tent was gone and so forth. God was very clear about all those things. He he established rules that set us up to see who he was and what he cared about. The book of Leviticus shows us that God wants to dwell with his people and to bless them, but in order to do that we have to respect them and obey them. Violation of so many of those laws in Leviticus was what? Death. Death. It's serious about our approach to God. Okay, it's one minute, almost a minute and a half after. I have bloviated yet enough. Questions, comments? I've I have wiped everybody out. Yep. I was wiped out before we started. <laughs> Me too. Nothing, huh? Okay. Then Charles, I think I'm it's right. up to you, sir. Lord, thank you for another good evening, another lively discussion that we take our worship of you seriously as Lord we, we pray that we're not flipping in it we pray that we're um, true in heart and not faking in it Lord we pray that uh, you would bless us this week and again I pray for the aunt family and on Saturday May that be a blessing. May that be a time of worship to you. In your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for watching or listening to this teaching on demand from Friendship Grace Brethren Church. Please consider sending us an email at info at friendshipgracebrethren.com to let us know how this teaching may have helped you. Please also consider joining us in person at Friendship Grace Brethren Church 
located at 10251 Metro Parkway Suite 116, Fort Myers, Florida, just south of the intersection of Metro and Colonial Boulevard. Sunday school begins at 9 and worship service at 10 a.m. We look forward to seeing you in person at Friendship Grace Brethren Church.